If you would, please, if you're able, would you stand and let's join together reading God's word today. We're going to start the book of Malachi. We'll be in the first chapter, reading verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, please raise your hand. The ushers would be happy to hand you one. This is our gift to you. If you need to take it home and to keep it, you feel free to do that, please. And if you are going to be using one of those Bibles today, that will be page 753. So that, again, is Malachi, the first chapter, verses 1 through 5. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this place that we call church where we can gather to worship you and learn more about you. We ask you to please give a special blessing to Pastor Mike as he brings the message now. I pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to understand and help us to apply your word to our lives each day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 All right. Well, this time you can sit down and, 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 and just get comfortable for a minute. We're going to be here for a little bit. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to preach a sermon out of that text that was just read. Uh, and then after that, the Christians in the room are going to take communion. We'll explain that when we get to it. Uh, and, and then we're going to sing. We're going to sing praises to Jesus. And we do our singing at the end of the service. And we do that on purpose because we think maybe you walked in here this morning and you're not quite ready to sing. Maybe you've had a rough week. Uh, maybe things haven't gone exactly like you planned this week. Maybe like really hard stuff uh, has been going on. And so we, uh, we want to preach this, this, this sermon. We want to preach this text in a way that reminds us that we have good reason to sing. And so that's what's going to happen this morning. If you and I have never met, my name is Mike, and I get to be the pastor here uh, at Mission Valley Church. Uh, I would love to meet you. And so there's a couple ways that we can do that. Uh, the first is this. I'm going to be standing out in the courtyard right after the baptism. Um, I'm just going to hang out there. I'd love to shake your hands, fist pump, whatever you're into. Uh, another way that we can meet is if you'll fill out one of those connect cards. Brittany told us about it in the beginning. She'll tell us again at the end. Uh, just fill that out and turn it in at the info table. We have a gift for you, and then I'll reach out to you. And then the, the final way that we can uh, meet, if you want, just send me a text, 602-763-3331. Uh, I'm excited uh, to start this brand new series today. We are starting a brand new series that, uh, that we're just calling Malachi Beauty and Brokenness. We're going to walk through the book of Malachi. And I know that this is an exciting book to walk through because I got more texts this week saying, hey, pastor, I was reading ahead. I was reading ahead and looking at Malachi, and I'm praying for you. Um, good luck with that one. Uh, I got one text that said, hey, I, I was reading through Malachi. Not sure why you picked to preach through this one, but good luck with it. Glad it's you and not me. I won't call that person out. Uh, I should ask him to come up and preach. Uh, I'm excited 
to preach this book. And the reason that I'm excited to preach this book is because like all of the Bible, we see themes of beauty and brokenness throughout all of it. Uh, Natalie Warner uh, does our graphics and she designed this graphic and I love it because I love this idea of of beauty and brokenness. I love looking at it like that. We see beauty and brokenness all throughout the Bible. You know, one of the ways of of looking at the Bible, if you were to just look at the whole thing uh, from the beginning to the end, if we were just to look at all of the, the whole thing from the first scene in Genesis all the way through the promise of what will happen when we look at the book of Revelations, we could see all of it as one big story. And some people will refer to this as the upper story, uh, sort of the entire story of from when God created everything all the way until the time when, when Jesus is going to come back and make everything right. Some people will refer to that as an upper story. And if you were to just, just sort of like summarize the upper story, it would sound sort of like God made the world and it was perfect and everything worked like it should, but then man sinned and broke it, and we see evidence of that brokenness all over the place. And that brokenness leads to a separation between God and man because God is perfect and he can't be around sin. But on the same day that man first sinned and broke the world, God promised that one day a Savior would come and make everything right. If you were to just say, hey, what's the whole story about? From the very, very beginning until all the way through Revelation, that's kind of what the whole story is about. And everything that happens from that first promise, that from that first promise, uh, when God says, hey, in the garden, hey, someday I'm going to send somebody and he's going to fix everything. Everything from there all the way up until the time when Jesus is born is called the Old Testament. All that stuff is the Old Testament. If you were to just lay the Bible out like a timeline and say that, that creation happened over here and revelation happens over there, and if you were to think of the whole thing, everything that happens from the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden all the way up until the time when Jesus is born, that's called the Old Testament. And every single thing that happens in the Old Testament is part of this upper story that points to a need for Jesus. Everything that happens in the Old Testament, it just shows us in the upper story, all of it points to a need for Jesus. So here's what happens. God will make a people for himself. He'll just pick a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a people for myself from out of you. Uh, you're, going to make, uh, you're, going to, you're going to have offspring. They're going to be as numerous as the stars and as the sand. And, and all that happens. And the, the people are made just like God said would happen. But things don't go well. They, they don't do things like they're supposed to. And they end up in captivity. Uh, God's chosen people, the Israelites, they end up in ca- captivity. And so they are, they are in captive. They are enslaved uh, in Egypt under Pharaoh. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, let my people go so that they may go and worship me in the desert. This is what happens. It's all in the Old Testament. And so God does it. He sends all kinds of miracles to happen to, to, in, to, to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And the people get out. They, they, they literally walk through uh, the sea on dry land and get out. And they're, they're there in the desert and they get to the desert and they start to complain. And they start to grumble about the things that they don't like. Hey, what are we going to eat? Oh, this is the food. We don't like it so much. They're complaining. They're complaining. They're complaining. And God says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just follow some laws. I'm going to give you some laws that are going to help you to, to live a good life and, and to live the life the way I want you to live. And he starts with the Ten Commandments. He says, just follow these laws. But they don't follow them. They're going to try to follow them, but they don't follow them. They'll struggle. And so God's people will say, hey, you know what we need? We need some judges. 
God, we're having a hard time following your laws. If you would just give us some judges, then we would have those judges would help us kind of understand the laws better, interpret the laws better, judge those laws a little bit better, and we could do that, but they don't follow the laws any better when the judges get there. And so then the people say, God, you know what we really need is some kings. If you're just laying it out like the timeline, it's like creation, Abraham, uh, uh, Moses, uh, the judges, and then some kings. We need some kings. If we could just get some kings. And so, so God gives them kings, but they don't listen to the kings any better. They don't serve God any better. They don't do anything like that. And, and then God says, or then they say, well, well we, we just don't hear from you, God. And so God sends prophets. He's literally sending prophets to t- talk to the people, to explain to the people exactly what to do. And all of this, as they are struggling to follow all of it, all of it points out the need for Jesus. All of the Old Testament just keeps saying over and over and over again, if you were just to, to paraphrase it, is y'all need Jesus. Y'all need Jesus over and over again. And it's the same thing that you and I need. Over and over again, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We are not capable of following God. We are not capable of living holy lives. We just just mess it up. And then one day, as the story's unfolding, Jesus comes. He comes as a baby in Bethlehem. He comes and he grows up to live a perfect life. He grows up and he dies a horrific death. And then he defeats that death so that anyone who believes in him will spend eternity with him. And then Jesus goes up into heaven. If you were just laying out the story, that happens at about here. That's the New Testament. That's when Jesus comes and he lives and he dies and he goes up into heaven. But before he goes up into heaven, before Jesus leaves, he gives instructions for his disciples. He says, here, here's what I want you to do until I come back. He says, I'm going to come back, but until I get back, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out and tell everybody about me, teach them everything I said, and baptize them when they believe and know that I'll be with you for all times, and I'm coming back. And then Jesus says, I'm going to come back. That's what's going on. And then we see the church get started, and we see uh, the, the church spread all over the place until it reaches all kinds of places like Phoenix, Arizona. And now we're just waiting for that day when Jesus comes back, living on that mission that he gave us until that happens. And all of this, all of this whole big upper story that goes from creation until revelation, all of this whole big upper story is a love story of God choosing to love people. He just chooses to love them. He chooses to love them. Over and over again, God is choosing to love people who oftentimes, most oftentimes, don't love him back. He just pursues them, and he loves them. And all throughout the story, we see themes of beauty and brokenness. If you just look at the story, you see all these themes of beauty and brokenness. Like in the garden, we see the beauty of God's creation and then the brokenness of Adam and Eve choosing sin instead. In the story of Abraham, we see the beauty of God choosing Abraham, he says, I'm just going to bless you. You didn't even know it was coming. You didn't even know who I was. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to bless you. And we see the brokenness of him and his wife not trusting God's plan in the beginning. In the Exodus, we see the beauty of God rescuing his people from Egypt, literally bringing them out into a, a new land. And we see the brokenness of them not following his command. In the time of the judges, we see the beauty of God appointing these judges to help his people and the brokenness of the same people ignoring those judges, just like they had ignored God. In the time of the kings, we see the beauty of God selecting a man after his own heart. He literally chooses this man, David, to be king. And we see the brokenness caused by David, even David, sinning. In the time of the prophets, we see the beauty of God speaking to his people. God literally speaking to his people like he's doing in this this book of Malachi. And we see the brokenness of those same people ignoring God and God ignoring him over and over again. And all throughout this upper story, there are all these lower stories going on. 
All throughout this upper story, all throughout this, there's like lower stories going in, and you can zoom in on them. We see stories of, of like Abraham, and we see all kinds of stories about Abraham's life, and we see stories of David's life, and we see stories of Paul's life over here. We see stories of Peter's life, which, which we looked at all throughout VBS. We see all these lower stories going on, stories of regular people that are living out their stories, part of this big upper story that's going, and all of those lower stories revolve around God, beautifully and perfectly loving flawed and broken people and pursuing them to reconcile them to him. And all these lower stories that are going on that are part of this huge, big upper story, we see God just loving beautifully. He just loves perfectly, and he loves broken and flawed people. And he's constantly pursuing them so that he can reconcile him. And so the people that we're going to read about in the book of Malachi are regular people like you and me. They're just regular people like you and me. We think of Bible times people as so different than us, but they're just different times. They are just people like you and me. They get up, they go to work, just like we get up and go to work. They have kids, they, they have arguments, they have, they have chores that have to get done. They're just doing regular life stuff. They just happen to live 400 years before Jesus. And I want you to understand that you and I are as tied to the people who are being written to 400 years before Jesus as we are to the people sitting in the row right next to you as part of God's big upper story. That's what's going on. So the people in this story, the people in this story of Malachi, in the book of Malachi, live in a time when God's people, the Jewish people, had fallen away from him again. They'd fallen away from him again. They had once again found themselves in captivity, this time in Babylon. This time not Egypt, this time Babylon. They've been captured and they've been taken away from the holy city in Jerusalem to live in captivity. They actually were, were enslaved by one army and taken away. That army lost and a new army became in charge of them. So now they've been enslaved twice, uh, taken far away, enslaved twice in this area. And around 516 BC, God's people were released from captivity to go back to home, to their home in Jerusalem. And they, they were supposed to go there and rebuild the temple, remake the city, make everything right. Around 458 BC, even more of God's people returned to help in the effort to, to rebuild the city. It's what they're to do. Like you're being released to go back to, to the city where you can go back and, and, and worship God. That's what it's all about. We see this happen so many times. God's people are, are released from captivity in Egypt so that they can go out into the desert and worship him. These people are released from Babylon so that they can go back to Jerusalem and worship God. That's what's happening. And so all that stuff's happening. Uh, 14 years later, around, around that time, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem to lead the people to rebuild the walls of the city to keep it safe from foreign invaders. Some of you might remember that we, just a couple of years ago, we went through the book of Nehemiah to look at this. After they rebuilt the city, it was like, well, we better fortify the, the walls. We better fix that and all that stuff. And by the writing of this text in about 430 BC, these people, God's people, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem are doubting God's love for them. I want you to think about this for a second. We want you to focus in on this for a second. These people are doubting God's love for them. The same God that has released them, that has released them from Babylon, they're doubting, does God still love us? These same people who are not only been released from Babylon, but the money from Babylon has been used to rebuild God's temple. And God has done all of this, and they're starting to wonder, is God really there? Has God forgotten about us? Does God hear our prayers? And not only are they actually doubting that God is still there, they are actively living like God is not there, and that's very dangerous. 
They're literally living like maybe God isn't there anymore. Maybe God doesn't care about us anymore. Maybe God is not for us anymore. And it's starting to inform the way they live. And when they're doing that, because they're doing that, they're committing all sorts of sins. They're committing all sorts of sins that are going to be addressed in the book of Malachi. All of these things that God is going to say through Malachi to them, knock it off. That's what he's going to say over and over. He's going to stop it. Right? They're doing all these things. They're sinning in all of these ways. And they're doing this because they have wondered if they have forgotten. They are questioning God's love. And all this sin and all the problems for the people in our book today is stemming from them doubting God. They're doubting Him. They're doubting His love. They're doubting it. You could say that the root of their problem is that they are struggling to trust and believe God's love for them. Now, you and I may not be able to relate to living in captivity. You and I might not be able to relate to being released from captivity to rebuild the holy city. We may not be able to relate to life in 430 B.C., but I bet every one of us can relate to doubting God's love. I bet more of us than would be willing to admit it in a church on a Sunday morning would say, yes, there have been times where I have wondered, God, are you there? God, do you hear what's going on in my life? God, do you see what's happening? Have you taken your hands off the wheels? Because it feels like nothing's going right. God, are you there? Where we start to question God's love. And when we question God's love, when we start to wonder, is he really there? Is this thing really real? We get in a dangerous situation where we might start living like he doesn't love us. We might start living like he's not there. And that's what's happening in Malachi. So as we start this book today, as we unpack this prophecy given to Malachi to tell God's people in 430 B.C., as we begin to unpack this part of this big upper story about God's love, this story that always involves beauty and brokenness, here's what I want us to know today. Christian, you can trust God's love. If you get nothing else out of why you got up and went to church this morning, if by the end of this sermon you still are not sure that you have good reason to sing, this is what I want you to hold on to. If you're going to write down one thing that I say this morning, write down this. You can trust God's love. Because if you stop trusting God's love, it will lead to all sorts of problems. I want you to know that you can trust it. You can really, really trust it. And so these people are questioning where God is, questioning, is he still there, wondering, does God love us? And he does. And so let's unpack this first five verses of this book from Malachi. And from it, we're going to draw four key ideas. The first is this, God chooses who he loves. The first reason that you can trust God's love is because God chooses who he loves. This is what it says in Malachi 1. We're just going to read the beginning of verse 2 along with 1. It says, The oracle of the word of Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. He starts off this thing by saying, I have loved you. And every single week that we preach through this book, we're going to start off by remembering that God says, I have loved you. His chosen people, the Jewish people, he says, I have loved you. He loves them. Now, some of you have read ahead or you're familiar with this book, and you know that God's going to say some really hard things in here. 
If you've read ahead in this book, some of you have read ahead with me, and you know God's going to say some horrible stuff, really harsh stuff. You're going to wonder at times, is this God? Like, I didn't know God talked like this. Is this, is this, is this how he talks? Like, whoa, it, it's going to be hard. As a matter of fact, God's going to say some things in this book that are going to stretch your understanding of the fullness of God. I've had a couple of people this week say, wow, this is really stretching me. I'm, I'm being stretched to try to understand God more. We're going to hear God's word ring out in righteous anger at the behavior of these people. But he starts by reminding them that he loves them. Like a good parent that says, I love you. I'm going to punish you, but I love you. I love you, and I'm going to punish you. This is really going to hurt, but I love you. This is what he's doing. And this reminder that he loves them is a reminder that he's chosen to love them. Now, let's be clear. Neither the people God is speaking to through Malachi, nor you and I could ever do anything to earn God's love. We can't do it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we could do. We can never do enough right. We can never do enough to earn it. God simply chooses to love us. He just chooses it. Why does he do it? He's God. He chooses it. You may remember this passage from our study in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God chooses to love who he chooses to love. Before the foundation of the world, God chooses who we, who we will adopt. He chooses who will make sons and daughters. And so that begs the question, how does God choose? Like, how does he do it? How does God choose? And here's what I want you to know, church. I have no idea. I have no idea. How does God do this? I don't know. I don't know. I, honestly, I don't. And I've never really met anybody who fully understands it either. Now, I've met plenty of people who, like me, believe that God chooses who he loves. And i met many people like me who believe that God has given his people free will. But nobody has ever truly been able to explain exactly and precisely how it works. So how does God choose? I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand all of it. And I don't think you do either. Much like I have no idea how God spoke the world into existence. I have no idea how he did that. God said, let there be light, and there was light. I don't know how he does that. He's God. I'm not. I don't know how he does that. I don't know how he did that. I don't know how God did much of the things he did. I don't know how God hung every single star in the sky. I don't know why they're up there. I don't know why the sun's closer and the other ones are further away. I have no idea. I don't know why some of them are shooting and we can make a wish on them. I don't know how that works. I don't understand any of it. I don't know how God separated the water from the sky. I don't know how God made the mountains and the valleys. I don't understand how God made every living thing. And I certainly don't have any idea how God made something as intricately complex as humanity. I have no idea how I work. I have no idea how I think. I really don't. Last night I went to sleep and I woke up and I was still alive and it doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like at some point last night while I was sleeping really well, I should have forgotten to breathe, but I didn't. I didn't remember to do anything else while I was sleeping. I didn't eat anything. I didn't drink anything. But somehow I managed to wake up this morning still alive. What a miracle. How did God do that? I have no idea. And in the same way that I can trust that God created all things, the same way that I can trust that he made me, the same way that I can trust that God is holding all things together, I can trust that God chooses to love who he chooses to love. 
I don't know how it works, but I can trust it. I don't know how gravity works, but I trust it. I don't know how my body works, but I'm probably going to fall asleep tonight peacefully, not worried about whether or not I stop breathing. And as a Christian who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, I can trust that God loves me. And if you are a Christian saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can trust that he loves you too. Here is good news for you today. You can trust God's love. You can trust it. You can trust it because he chooses you. He chooses to love you. And if he chose you, God didn't make a mistake. Here's the second thing I want you to know this morning. If God has chosen to love you, you don't have to question it. If God has chosen to love you, you don't have to question it. This is what it says in Malachi 1, 2. Right after it says this, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? God's responding to them. This this book is a response to all their questions. It's a response to all their doubt. It's a response to all their their wondering, like, are you still there? Can you hear our prayers? It's it's all that. God has heard their questions. Are you really there? Do you hear me? Do you love me? These people are questioning God, like people have since the very beginning of time. Adam and Eve questioned God's plan in the garden. They said, well, surely nothing bad will happen if we just eat this one fruit. I'm sure it'll be fine. Oh, you got a plan for us, God? We can have everything we want right here. We can just enjoy each other all the time. We don't have to do anything like hardly. This just be fantastic. Just live here in the garden forever and don't eat that one thing. Nah, we think we'll try the one thing. You ever like want to just like get a hold of Adam and Eve and be like, hey, let me just try to understand this. I was just trying to understand what y'all were thinking. You know, you know how parents will ask kids, it's like, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking? And the kid's like, I, I wasn't thinking at all. I'd love to ask Adam and Eve one time, like, what were you thinking? Y'all were hanging out naked in the garden. You were like, I mean, like this, we're grown ups in here. If there's kids in here, I'm sorry. We got kids over there too, but I mean, they're naked in the garden. Here's Adam. Here's your wife. She's naked in the garden. Hang out with her all day and eat whatever you want. Just don't eat from that one tree. And all of a sudden he's like, eh, I don't know. seems like, I, I mean, maybe I got a better plan than that. Well, what were you thinking, man? Now we got to walk around wearing clothes. It's 120 degrees here. But just keep doing it though. It'd be awkward. We're not... Not that kind of church. The people be questioning God. Abraham and Sarah question God's plan for creating a people for themselves. God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm choosing you. I'm going to make a people for myself. And he's like, I'm old. And he's like, God's like, I, I chose you. And he's like, I don't get it. Moses questions God's plan to send him to Pharaoh. Says, God, are you sure you picked the right guy? I'm not really the best orator. The Israelites question God's plan over and over and over again. The people question Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, here is God incarnate as a man. And they see him. And instead of just falling down at his fate all the time and worshiping him, they're questioning him. Like, hey, Jesus, would it be okay if we did this one thing that you said not to do way back in the Old Testament? I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And you and I question God all the time, too. We question God all the time. Probably not you guys. Maybe just people that look like you and me. We, we question God every time we worry about the past or the present or the future. We, we question God every time we choose our ways instead of his. And at no time throughout the history of the world, throughout the history of this upper story, has questioning God and choosing a way different than his worked out well for people. It never works out well. It never goes well. When we question God and we choose our own ways, it never goes well. Now, don't get me wrong. God can certainly handle your questions. God can certainly handle your questions. Maybe you're going through something really, really hard right now, and you're saying, God, I don't understand why. I don't understand why you've allowed this to happen. I don't understand why, why this thing is happening. I don't understand why me or my family is having to go through this difficult thing. And I want you to know that God can totally handle your questions. God's not scared off or confused by your questions. God's not going to stop loving you because you've got questions. I just want you to know that you don't have to question God's love for you. 
God loves you, and you don't have to question it. It's of no use for you to question God's love for you, because if you do, you may start living like God does not love you. You may begin to feel like God does not love you, and it wouldn't be good for you, because you'd be tempted to live in all sorts of sin. Christian, you can rest in the fact that God loves you, freeing you from questioning it. How exhausting is it to walk around every day and question, does God really love me? What if you could just hold on to that and know, no, no, no matter what else happens, that is firm, that is foundational, God loves me. Brings us to our next point. I've got to warn you, this one's going to sting. Hang in there with me. God's capable of hate. Some of you are like, I shared, this, uh, I shared these points uh, with some staff members earlier this week. I said, hey, I think I'm going to say this. And they were like, can you say something different? That one's hard. God's capable of hate. This is what it says in Malachi 1, 3 through 5. It says, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God says I have hated Esau. And because I have hated him, I have laid waste to his country and left his heritage to jackals. Left it to jackals. So says here, just leaving it to jackals. And even if some of his people would rebuild the land, I'll tear it down again. As a matter of fact, I will be angry at those people forever. This is strong stuff from God. I hate that guy. I tore up his place. I left it to jackals. And if somebody rebuilds it, I'm going to do it again. This is God speaking. Now, some of you will see that, and you'll think, well, surely that is not God. You'll think, surely that's not God. You'll think, maybe that's a misprint. You'll think, maybe that's why Mike's mic is cutting out. Maybe that's what's going on up here. You'll think all of these things. But I want to remind you that this is God speaking through the prophet Malachi to the people, saying, Esau, I have hated. This isn't the only spot in the Bible that sounds like that. This isn't the only spot in the Bible that sounds like this. If you were to look at Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, it says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among believers. God hates this stuff. And yet some will say, yeah, but he just hates the sin, not, not the person that's, con- that's doing the sin. And while the Bible is clear that God chooses to love sinners, it is also pretty clear that he can hate them until he changes them. This is what it says in Psalm 5, 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You hate evildoers. You destroy them. You abhor them. And some of you will say, well, yeah, but that's, that, that, that's the Old Testament. That doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't really count anymore. I've actually heard people say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. He doesn't sound like that anymore. That's just like the God of the Old Testament. I've actually heard that one a lot. This is the God of the Old Testament as though God has somehow changed, but God does not change. Look what it says in Malachi just a couple of chapters later. It says, for I, the Lord, do not change. 
I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God says in this book, I don't change. And so it is a false assessment to even say there is a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There is only one God, and he is unchanging. And yet some will still say, well, yeah, but that's just the Old Testament. It doesn't sound like that in the New Testament. Well, look at Romans For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed on men because of their unrighteousness. It goes on to say in chapter 2, He will render to each one according to his work to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. This is God. This is whom they're speaking of. For for those people that choose this way, there will be wrath and fury. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Expectation of judgment, fire that consumes. God is certainly capable of hate. One of the three things that I want us to consider that should still give us good reason to sing, even as we process this, even as we are stretched to understand the fullness of God. The first is this, if God is capable of hate, doesn't that make the fact that he chooses to love us that much sweeter? Imagine if God was a God that could only love. Then when he says, I love you, what would it mean? It would be like, well, so what? There's nothing else you could do. You don't have anything else inside of you. So the fact that he can have both and chooses love, that says a lot. Also this, considering how sinful we are, considering how sinful you and I are, Paul talks about us and says that our our mouths are like, our, our throats are like open graves. We're, we're, we're like that. We're, we're those kind of people. He says like our tongues have like the venom of snakes on it. That's, that's you and I. That's sinners like you and I. Considering how sinful we are, maybe we should be less surprised that a righteous God is capable of anger or hating and be more surprised that a righteous God is capable of loving any of us. I think the truly surprising thing, if we're being honest, is I, I'm shocked you could possibly love me, God. I'm shocked you would possibly send your son to die from you. Have you seen what I've done just this week? Have you seen the ways I have messed up just this week and you you would send Jesus to die from me? That's the shocking thing. And all of this points to the fact that we are desperate for a savior. All of this, all of this stuff, all of these problems that we make, all these things that are going on in our life, all of it is just pointing out over and over again that we are desperate for a savior and God is loving enough to send one. Church, God is capable of of hate, but he chooses to love. The fourth thing I want to talk about this morning is this. God's love is not contingent on our behavior, but God's love should inform our behavior. Maybe this is the best news all morning long. God's love is not contingent on our behavior. It's not as though if we could ever get this right, then maybe God could start loving us. Throughout the study of Malachi, we need to remember how it starts. It starts by God saying, I have loved you. I've loved you. I've loved you. God says, I've loved you. I've loved you. That's how it starts. Not if you could fix all this stuff I'm about to tell you to fix, then maybe I could possibly love you. 
God's not like, hey, if you'll correct all these sins that I'm going to talk to you about for the rest of this book, then maybe I could finally start to love you. No, he doesn't do that. Not, not like, hey, I, not like maybe someday I can love you. This is I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to correct you. And the same should happen for you and I. We should live as those loved by God. And how do those people live? Well, Jesus answered it like this in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The entire story of God's love is God saying, I love you, and because I love you, I want good things for you, so live like this. When God makes Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden, he says, here's the thing, I, I have these, this one rule for you, I have this one rule for you because I want it to go well for you. And so I don't want you to eat of that tree because if you do, you're going to know stuff that I don't want you to know. And you're going to experience stuff that I don't want you to experience. And I have a much better plan for you. And they chose their own way. And when God brought the people out of Egypt, he said, hey, it'll go well for you if you will just follow these rules. I have rules for you that will make your life go well. And I want good things for you. I have a good plan for you. And if you will just follow these things, it'll go well for you. And they chose their own way. Over and over and over again, we choose our own way. We choose to do what we want and not what he wants. This isn't, this isn't God saying, hey, if you ever finally figure it out, if you finally start living right, then I'll start to love you. We can trust God's love because he loved us while we were still sinners. Here is really, really good news. If you couldn't earn God's love, what makes you think you could ever lose it? If it was given to you as a free gift of grace, what makes you think it could ever be taken away from you? God chose to love you. He chose to love you. And because of that, you can live like he does. Christian, you can trust God's love because God chooses who to love. And because of that, you're free not to question it. And because God knows what hate is, he certainly knows what love is. And so you can behave like someone loved by God. And so maybe the real question that you're asking yourself, even as you're sitting there right now, is, well, how can I know if God loves me? Maybe you're sitting there like, well, I, 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 it sounds great, but like, how can I know? Does he love me? How, how, how could I know? Well, here's what I want you to know. If you can believe the gospel, you can know that God loves you. You see, you could not believe it if God hadn't already chosen you and changed your heart so that you could believe. If you can truly believe that God made the world and it was beautiful, if you can believe that, and if you can believe that man sinned and broke it and that the worst part of that brokenness is that it separated us from God, and more than that, that it puts us in the place of deserving God's wrath. That's what our sin does. That's what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. The same God who hated Esau and laid waste to his land is righteous to judge us because of our sins. Like a good judge, he could cast judgment on all of us and the wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what happened with brokenness. And the truth is that it's our sin that did it. It's our sin that did it. And left on our own, we would have no chance. None of us could ever on our own stand before a perfect God. None of us could ever stand on our own before God and face his judgment. All of us would deserve eternal death. But God had so much compassion for us that he wouldn't leave us in this separated state. God had so much love for you that he sent Jesus down here on a rescue mission. He sent Jesus down here to rescue you because he knew you could never do this on your own. He knew I could never do this on my own. He sends Jesus down. And while Jesus is here, he lives the perfect life that you and I never could. The same perfect life that none of these people were ever able to live. He lives it perfectly. And then he dies a horrific death. 
We, when we key in on the crucifixion, when we think about what Jesus went through, we focus on the beating and on the nails. But the worst thing that happened to Jesus on the day that he was hung on that cross, the very worst thing is that he faced every last drop of God's wrath. The same God that would say, hey, I have hated you and so I have laid waste to your land and left it to jackals. That wrath, all of it, every last drop of it was poured out on Jesus so that there is literally none left for those who believe. There's just no wrath left. It's not as though God stored up some wrath to give to some of you. There's just none left. Jesus took all of it. And then after Jesus had endured every single bit of God's wrath, he endured something even worse than that. He was separated from God for the first time in eternity so that those of us who believe will never have to be separated from him again. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And if you can believe this, you can know that God loves you and you can live like it. So can you believe today? Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us. God, we thank you for loving us when you don't have to. We thank you for loving us when we don't deserve it. We thank you for loving us in spite of the fact that over and over and over again, we choose to put other things before you. We choose sin. And in spite of that, you chose us and you loved us and we thank you. God, if there's anybody in the room today, if there's anybody in this place today that has not yet believed in your life, death, and resurrection, if, if there's anybody here that you have not saved, we ask you unashamedly to save them. We ask you to change their hearts and give them the faith to believe. And for those who have believed, Lord God, we ask that you help us to live like people who are loved by you. Help us to live in a way that would make you known. Help us to live on mission for you as those loved by you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Well, this is exciting. Oh, this is a, this is, this is a really cool day. Uh, this is my friend Morgan. Uh, he's so excited to be up here. He looks a little bit nervous, but he's fired up. He told me last week out there that he's ready to go. Uh, I want you guys to know that there is really good work that's happening in our kids' ministry and our youth ministry. We're so thankful for it, for all that work that's going on. But today is a big day for you, Morgan, because you told me that you have believed in Jesus for a while, and you just told your parents, like, are we going to do this thing or what? Like, you were, he was ready. The only thing stopping him last week was there's no water. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Uh, we talked about this before. I know you already talked about it, but do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe that he died for your sins? Yes. All right. Very good. Are you going to follow him for the rest of your life? Yes. All right. Well, then we better baptize you, I think. All right. Let's get in. Those are new shoes. They're new shoes. They're new shoes. You don't want to get them wet. Go ahead. Hop in there. No, it's not dirty. No, this is great water. What is this? What are you like? What are you doing? It's great water. It's fantastic. All right. Um, I know you've, uh, you've confessed before, but you're going to do this in front of your whole church family. Do you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? All right. Very good. Then it's my privilege to baptize you, my brothers, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah.